you, and it's so cool to be able to do life surrounded by such great people. Um, <laughs> as I was thinking about actually standing here and sharing, I was thinking back over all the little things that God put in my life to make tonight happen. And I grew up with a lot of my teen years, my mom would read out loud to us, and one of the most common things she would, not the most common, but one of a common thing was marriage and dating books. And, like, we would, she would just read them out loud. We went through Fascinating Womanhood, like, a couple times, and the classic dating book called The Rules. And later on, I read um, For Women Only. And I enjoyed them very much. And, but, you know, there were some things. It's like, how does this work in real life? And so life goes on, and you do own studies, and then you hear about, okay, submission and the headship order. And you just try to, I just tried to figure out how does this all work out. And it is so cool. So I've known a lot of stuff in my head, but I haven't been able to figure it out. Where does it fit in God's plan? And it's been pretty much the coolest thing of my entire existence to realize that God not only had a plan for us, but he had a plan that walks hand in hand with the abundant life that Jesus promised. Okay, so over a year ago, I started this journey of discovery, and honestly, you guys, I feel like I need to apologize beforehand because it probably should be divided up into sessions. Um, I have this divided up into five parts, and for the sake of time, I'm basically going to do less preaching and just rolling, just reading over my notes because... I've, been, I've gone over this numerous times, and it's taken over an hour. So I'm just going to basically put as much heart as I can into reading these notes. And so that is why refreshments are there, because get up, get food, get tea, stay awake, whatever. Just make yourself at home and comfortable. Okay, so let's pray. Jesus, we know that you are good. You are goodness itself, and we love you. We love serving you. We love the place that you created us for. We love the privilege it is to be your treasured possession. And I ask that you would join us tonight. I pray that your heart would speak through me. I don't need to get my words all right, God. I want your heart to speak through me. And in Jesus' name, I refuse Satan any access to use any of the words that I speak tonight. These words are for your honor and glory, Lord God. And I pray 
that each person here would hear what you want them to hear, whether it's a phrase or truth, Lord. I pray that they would remember they would remember what you want them to hear. Open their ears in Jesus' name. We want you to be glorified tonight, and I am excited to, for the opportunity to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, part one, the help. The sun rose, the moon shone, the earth revolved, the grass grew, the trees bore fruit. Animals walked silently through the trees, and everything was good. And so God created a perfect world and then placed two ignorant humans inside it who had the capacity to ruin everything. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before he called the light into being, God saw his son welcoming his bride. And as he formed the man and woman, all the decisions he made, all the pieces he put into place was for that end. So let's dive in. What is it that makes us who we really are? We, know, we all know it's not our appearance. If we get past our preferences, our insecurities, our personalities, our hurts, our thought patterns, we realize that the part of us that only really matters is the part of us that will live forever. Now let's, take, let's read the Genesis account and take note of the nouns and the pronouns. Genesis 1.27, God created man, singular, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Male and female, he created them, plural. Genesis 5.1-2 says, when God created man, singular, he made him in, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, plural, and named them man, singular, when they were created. John 4.24 says, Jesus said, Jesus says, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he made our spirit in the image of God, eternal. God created the, his own God created the human spirit in his own image he made it and then he created male and female bodies and put that spirit inside Matthew 22:30 says for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven Angels are gender neutral and our spirits are also gender neutral it's the same spirit in both genders a complete human being is made up of spirit, soul, and body. Our soul and body are intertwined with our gender, while our spirit is not defined by it. Genesis 
and also 21 to 25, the Lord, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. I want you to take note of how Adam spoke the woman's identity over her as soon as he saw her. He placed his stamp of complete approval over her life, and she was accepted. She was his pride and joy. Now we know that the man and woman were both created in the image of God. Both man and woman are partakers of the same name and nature before the fall. The man that God made in the image of God is in Hebrew ish and isha. The woman the word woman literally means manness. Both man and, man and woman were created to rule together and have dominion over the earth. Both man and woman were blessed by God to live in partnership. There was no hierarchy in the relationship God created. Male and female completed and complemented each other perfectly. Both man and woman were equally responsible and accountable to God for their deeds. And it is only after the fall that Eve is named. And thereby the woman comes to have a separate identity to the man. So with all that clarified, let's go back to God's reason for creating Eve. I think it's important to realize that she wasn't an afterthought. God intended to create her all along. And his biggest obstacle was making the man aware that he needed her. God created Eve to be valued. And he knew Adam would never truly value her unless he experienced life without her. I also think it's important to realize that our calling is not a result of the fall. Because it was before the fall that God stated her role, that her role was necessary. And so God states, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew language specifies the woman to be a helper corresponding and marrying him, marrying the man. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, brought her to the man. So what is help suitable? Because in order to fulfill our calling, we need to know what we are called to. Which leads into part two, the definition. The Hebrew word for help suitable is pronounced ezer kenegdo. Ezer is the word God God chose to use when defining the woman's role. And it is actually a very difficult word to translate into English. As the word help has a very broad usage. Everything from acting as someone's assistant to rescuing someone. Generally, Ezer and related words are used in a military context where someone is actively receiving help against an enemy. When this word is read in its biblical context, there is a strong sense of coming to someone's rest defense, proactively coming to help someone in their need. 
Some people have said that rescue would have been a better word, but though the context of the word is often used in rescue situations, Hebrew has a word specifically for rescue. And if God could have used that, if he had wanted to use that word. In the Old Testament, the word ezer is used 21 times. Only two of those times does it apply to the woman. Three of those times, Ezer is used for nations to whom Israel appeals for military aid. And 16 times, God used the word Ezer to apply to himself when God talked about going to Israel's defense as a helper. And because we know that God does all things perfectly, let's explore those verses. Ezer used for God as Israel's helper. O Lord, give Judah strength to defend their cause. Help them against their enemies. There is none like God who runs through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O God, do not delay. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. And I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And the last one says, He destroys you, O Israel, for you you are against me, against your helper. What these verses have in common is that either is consistently used in military contexts. The Ezer is undoubtedly a warrior. Konegdu. This is suitable. This is a sort of mix of three words. The K part means according to. The negd means in front or opposite. And the U means him. And if you stick these together in English and translate them literally, it doesn't really make sense, which is why translations vary a fair amount. The central idea seems that if God is making someone a helper who is the opposite of Adam in some way, in English, opposite sounds negative, which is why it isn't translated that way. This probably means that she is opposite, like corresponding to. A very loose and more interpretive translation might read that God made Eve to be the mirror image of Adam, and they aren't the same. They are copies together, copies of each other, but they do, but they do fit each other. Expounding the idea is a, a bit. It would be implying that their differences are, are made to be complementary. She is strong where he is weak. He is strong where she is weak, and that would be why she could be such a necessary help to him. And I get the picture of your two hands. They're opposite in every way. If you would have two left hands or two right hands, life just wouldn't work. But two hands that are totally opposite work very well together. We've all heard the comparison that men's, comparison that men's brains are waffles and women's are spaghetti. Men in general, general like to carp, like put these things in boxes, carp, compartmentalize, oh, I'm so proud to say that word, things. And for women, everything is connected to everything. That means that men with their common thought patterns, traits, instincts, and tendencies are just as they should be. That means men are supposed to be less communicative than women. 
they are naturally less emotionally driven. They, but they are driven to conquer. They were created to fix things. They were created with a co-partner in mind, and that means they are supposed to need your help in remembering and finding things. Women don't complain about something that is our job. And honestly, I used to, in our class, probably the first five years of our marriage, I'd be like, Sam couldn't find a tool or a bill, and he'd get all frustrated and finally come in and be like, oh, I can't find this thing. And I go, and I pretty much, this is no lie, I, could find, I can find pretty much anything within three minutes. And it used to annoy me just a little bit because it was right there in plain sight. But they're created that way. They were made to doggedly put one foot in front of the other day after day, shouldering responsibility and persistently doing life. And I was recently in a conversation, and a man in the group said something that I will never forget. He said, but men's life is about doing stuff day after day after day. They very rarely spend much time on the heart because their life is doing. You go to work day after day after day after day after day to pay boring thing, boring bills like electric bills. What? Their life is a life of doggedly doing, and that is one of their greatest strengths as well as being one of their greatest weaknesses. And so that means that women with our common thought patterns, traits, instincts, and tendencies are also, we are just as we should be. And that means we are supposed to need words. We were created to be emotionally driven. We were designed to desire to love and be loved. We were designed to be atmosphere creators. And I think of the story with Cinderella. Every, that, when Cinderella makes her entrance into the ballroom, it, the atmosphere shifts. And the reason those kind of things kind of speak to our heart is because inside us, we know, we are, we desire what we are created for. Everybody says, if mama ain't happy, the whole house isn't happy. We create the atmospheres around us. It is our job to help him find the mayonnaise, the words, and the strength to keep going. We were created to have a desire to be seen and heard, and we were created to be valued, honored, and cherished. It is said that every man is born with a question on, an, on his tongue, and it haunts him for the rest of his life. And that question is, do I have what it takes? Remember the opposite mirror image, male and females, are to each other? You know, Satan wants to answer that question. But I believe our differences were created to answer it. And in case you're wondering if women are born with a question, we absolutely are. And we'll get to that later. Instead of our differences working together, Satan has everything geared towards division. Movies, media, they're all classic for this. Emotional damage is sustained by both genders, and both men and women's coping patterns of avoidance and protection are being used to divide and isolate. Women stuff their emotional tendencies and try to toughen up. 
They feel like they need to prove that they don't need a desire or desire the security a healthy man brings. And men are mocked for not seeing the ketchup in the fridge, and they pretend they don't care. They feel inadequate, and so they have a constant sense of needing to prove something. And a lot of domination we see today is as a result of men being threatened and insecure. Now, does God have a sense of humor? Absolutely. And while it's okay to laugh at jokes and take a moment, take a moment to search your heart. Because honestly, sometimes our differences are really genuinely kind of funny. But do you secretly despise him for something he was created with? So Satan's tactics are twofold. Keep women from recognizing what Ezer is, and by default, men are isolated. And to keep people threatened, shamed, insecure, to ensure that humans will try to dominate other humans. God gave dominion over the earth and the things in it, but he never gave man dominion over man. We were created to be different, and we process things differently, but we are designed and equipped fulfill our role well. I get the mental image of two warriors trekking down a jungle path. The man keeps to the trail. He goes at a set of pace. Believe me, you can see him. He, determination and desire to conquer keeps him focused. He keeps his head and his bearings. He has the physical strength to overcome obstacles, and he is focused on reaching the destination. And the woman is right next to him. She is in tune with her surroundings, alert to danger, the sound of water, and is sensitive to approaching enemies. She veers in and out of the jungle around them, and she is a keen strategizer. Both are equipped in weaponry. Both are secure in the other's knowledge and skills, and both cover for each other in an attack. They have learned to work with each other, covering for each other's weaknesses and trusting each other's strengths. They aren't threatened by the other's gifts. Instead, they are thankful for them, and they count on using them. There is nothing to prove. They are one unit with one mission, because survival depends on both being strong. Now, with this in mind, let's read over the verses where Ezer is used for the woman. And this is before the fall. Then the Lord God said, This is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And to give a picture of what God was envisioning when he said that, I'm going to read Deuteronomy 33:29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. What do people call when they are attacked by a dog? Help. What about if a person is drowning? Help. At that moment, they are not asking for an indecisive person offering them tea on a tray. They are begging for active release and assistance. And that, my friends, are who we are. We are help. We are answer to that cry. We are a partner to work as a team. We know our spouse's weaknesses, and they know ours, and we cover for each other. We are a co-strategizer to defeat the odds, and we are perfectly fitted together so our differences lock together to make a formidable force. We are Ezer. God never does something on a whim. He's intentional. And that 
And there is a reason why God chose the military term ezer instead of a cozy and comfortable word that would translate as companion or encourager. Lack of good company wasn't the reason that man shouldn't be alone. Part three, working it out. Okay, so I don't believe that ezer only applies to married men and women. Ezer Connecto explains the reason why women are even in the world. It applies to relationship to all men you come in contact with. And why? Because Jesus was single and totally fulfilled in his mission. It was he that coined the phrase, life abundantly. And in Matthew 19, he gives logical reasons for remaining single. Paul defended and even encouraged singlehood. Marriage is a physical representation of what Jesus did for his church. Singlehood is a physical representation of Jesus waiting for his church. Jesus is still human. He is still single. And he is still waiting. Marriage is a lot like having kids. Complicated. Worth it? Absolutely. But it can complicate healing in the individuals involved. Soul ties and dependents are created, and though absolutely God-ordained within the confines of marriage, Satan has come in with sin and wrecked havoc. Remember that whatever God states as good, Satan singles out to destroy. This next part may seem like I'm speaking to wives, but I'm not necessarily. I happen to be married, so as I am going through this, a lot of it just applies personally to my life where I am now. But if you are single, listen with an open mind and evaluate what you've been taught in the past, your reactions, your preconceived notions, and your relationships with the men in your life. And who knows? You might need this someday. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And 2 Corinthians 2.11 has one of my very favorite verses. So that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Satan can't pull anything on us. We know them. We can know them. And we can recognize them. Whatever God wants, we know the devil works towards the opposite end. But he can't outsmart us. If God says it isn't good for man to be alone, we can be assured that the devil's goal is to make sure that men are alone. And like every road we have ever seen, there are two ditches on either side. And both were created to isolate men. The first ditch doesn't surprise us at all. It's the ditch of feminism. Because Satan plays two sides of the coin, you can be sure he is trying to raise up controlling, domineering men. It is a definite spirit with an agenda of control in an unhealthy manner. I do believe, though, that the most domineering men are the most insecure, wounded, and damaged and because they are constantly trying to prove their competence or cope with the own damage done in their life by domination. What you feel in your heart, you will project. But I'm not speaking to men tonight. I am speaking to women. 
And we have a job regardless of what is going on on the other side. But nevertheless, there is a spirit of feminism. Jezebel, we sometimes call her. One of her goals is to persistently show men that they are inconsequential. Movies are classic for this. Men are portrayed as the oafs who can't find their shoes, can't find the mayonnaise, and who can't manage the kids. Men are no longer heroes. Instead, we are led to wonder how they manage without women. I love Father of the Bride, but it's a pretty classic example of you watch that movie and you're like, I don't know. I don't know how he even does it. Again, Satan turns what was a God-ordained intentional gift of needing women into shame. And shame incites a negative reaction. If a man can do it, women can do it better. If we, when we are in the stitch, we feel like we have something to prove. We fight for the man's place. We want their titles. We want their platforms. We use our influence to silence their opinion. And we get threatened, and we secretly despise him for who he is. The end goal of feminism is to show men aren't needed. They want it, It's to show them that they aren't leaders. It makes sure that a man knows he's incapable and never gives him a chance to prove otherwise. And I ask you, is that not the very spirit that makes men want to dominate? It doesn't matter which gender the spirit lives in, it's wrong. And what, it, what is in us that compels us to prove our worth? When a woman allows feminism to lit up, live out of her heart, her man is alone. And this ditch shouldn't surprise us because though feminine wasn't, feminism wasn't created by God, it is a di- direct result of the fall. You will de- you, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will re- rule over you. And the power struggle was born. Now God is holy and good. He doesn't create evil to punish us. And yet he's omniscient, so he knows all things. And just like we know that a room gets dark when we turn off the light, he knew the result when sin entered the world. And so he did what he could, and he warned us. But it's good for us to remember again that Ezer was not created after the fall. Our place is not our punishment. But there's also another ditch on the other side of the road, and this ditch is of deadly compliance. This stance of wordless obedience is actually a form of passive control. It is intentionally blinding yourself and accepting decisions regardless of the consequences. It is exactly what Adam did to Eve. He stood there, received the fruit, and seemingly unquestioningly ate it. He knew what he was doing. He knew what it looked like. He knew exactly what he was holding in his hand. And then when God called him out, he blamed Eve, washing his hands of all guilt and playing the victim. And ever since then, women have been playing that same game back. The heart of it is actually so incredibly ugly because deep down in the center of it, it's his decision. If he wants this, the outcome is his fault. And it looks so sneaky because it is so sneaky because it looks so good and it even looks biblical. Both of those ditches give the man, gives the devil exactly what he wants. Neither empower the man to fulfill his God-given role because in both of them he is isolated. 
Jezebel either smashes masculine worth or incites male dominance. Deadly compliance never questioned. It mindlessly and mechanically goes about seemingly doing the right things, but with no purpose or power. And Satan has a heyday. He can feed men lies all day long. And a man can live out and rule over his family day after day, doing, doing, and all the while completely isolated in himself and out of line of the partnership that God intended. And all the while never being, never being questioned. And he is exactly where Satan wants him, alone. So let's explore a situation where a woman walked in this ditch of deadly compliance. In Acts 5, 1-2, opens the scene of Ananias and Sapphira. And I went through a couple different translations, and I want to read these first two verses in different translations. New King James Version says, But a certain man named Ananias, with his Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. NLT says, But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Amplified says, Now a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's full knowledge and complicity, he kept back some of the proceeds, bringing only a portion of it, and set it at the apostles' feet. And ESV says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And I'm going to start reading between the lines here. We don't know the full conversation between them, but we know that historically at this time, men didn't normally ask for their wives' opinions when conducting business matters. It's very unlikely that Ananias would have thought to ask Sapphira's opinion before deciding. And very rarely, if you're trying to be sneaky and deceitful and lie, you don't ask somebody's opinion whether you should or not. Also take note of the word usage, aware of it, consent, full knowledge. It's not like the scene painted in Esther where Haman's wife actively planned the gallows that was to hang Mordecai. It does not say plan with, decide together, conspired to. Ananias made a decision and Sapphira knew what he had decided and she chose to go along with it rather than to risk conflict. And she remained silent. She wasn't willing to be easier, and she left Ananias alone. But before we are too hard on her, let's just think for a moment. She probably also was used to not sharing opinions. Just that the fact that Ananias felt like he had to pretend to gain gain acceptance shows that he was a deeply insecure man. And insecure men often even take suggestions as a threat let alone an outright question. There's a good chance he had anger issues, rejection issues, or perhaps he had a silver tongue that made her feel stupid. And when Peter called her and asked her if they had sold the piece of property for the amount stated, she didn't know her husband was dead. 
She couldn't hide behind his decision and play the victim. But she stood there and was afraid because I think she had a vision of what would be waiting for her at home if she would speak up. And so she chose her husband over what she knew was right, and she paid the price. So what should you have done? Let's explore it. First Peter 3, 4-6 says, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And that's the catch. Women were created to want to be desirable to men. We crave their admiration. We crave their approval. We crave their acceptance. And we want to make them proud of us. To stand up and speak up risks all of that. But I believe that God instilled in us the gift of foresight and he gave it to us for a reason. There is a reason why everything is connected to everything. We know. We know when a husband is losing his children's hearts. We know when he is coping with childhood wounds. We see when he is driven by insecurities or threatened by authority. We can list all the lies he believes. We often understand his motives better than he does. And we see the future and where it is leading. They say men are doers, women are feelers. And it's not by accident. All of these things are part of our calling. We were designed to see these things. For many of us, the submit and respect commands have gone so deep that we feel guilty for even seeing our husband's weaknesses. It feels easier to just ignore and agree than engage our concerns, or we allow our panic to force us into nagging him prematurely. You might see rejection ruining your husband's relationships. You might see how fear makes him control his family. You might recognize how he uses humor as a protection against vulnerability. You might see how hurts make him harsh with the children, or you may see how an insecurity keeps him from living his potential. We were created to see past the outward and into the reason behind the action. But so often, we're afraid. We are afraid to acknowledge our husband's weaknesses because we haven't experienced healing ourselves, and so we aren't sure there's healing for him. We don't know what it's like to experience unconditional acceptance, and so we don't know how to give it. We feel like recognizing his failings is somehow disrespectful. We don't trust ourselves to to respond rightly to them. There is hurt inside of us that will be exposed by being honest with how we feel, and so it's easier to just ignore it than risk vulnerability. We don't know how to be okay with imperfection, and we aren't patient enough to prepare a safe place. And this is the main reason why Peter says, do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
But we also know that we can't tell a man anything. And let me tell you, he was designed that way. Remember how we talked about how man's, men's instinctive responses are God-given? Men are destination-oriented. They don't see the mayonnaise in the fridge because their eyes were created to see the big picture. They are well aware the fridge is full. It's the mayonnaise they can't find. Men don't like being told what to do. In a healthy man, this makes them decisive, level-headed, and confident. In a healthy man, we women admire those traits because those traits make us feel safe and protected. But remember, just as God created men with their characteristic tendencies, God also created us women, connecto. We are opposite and pertaining to, and every strength has a weakness. Men are doers. They find it easier to do than to analyze uncomfortable feelings. Women tend to be feelers. We know that that everything has a reason behind it. Men are leaders. They doggedly stick to the trail. They were created to be competent, and they are threatened by too many suggestions because suggestions can sound like they aren't perceived as being capable. All these things make them the leaders God sees them to be. These characteristics in a healthy man are not our enemy. And you know what? This is one of the most remarkable things. I find it crazy amazing that our perfect God is so okay with imperfection that he created human beings with strengths and thus weaknesses on purpose. Because every strength has a weakness and every weakness has a strength. And God created both and then made male and female opposite and pertaining to each other. Do you remember how every boy is born with an unanswered question burning on his heart? Do I have what it takes? And Satan's goal is to make sure that question destroys him. And though it is said that a little boy's father should be the one to answer that question, I believe that it's a woman's job to answer it again and again and again. And respect and honor is meant to do just that. Inside you is a map to help guide your husband into wholeness, into places in his life that he would never go on his own. Holy Spirit is there to help to navigate it all without him knowing. This is where respecting and submitting come in. But first, we have to know a few things about ourselves, because the next part is what makes respect and honor so powerful. And this is part four, knowing our worth. So if every boy is born with a question, what question is a girl born with? And some people say, it's, am I beautiful? But I actually disagree. I believe it's, am I accepted? Because when God went to form Eve, he could have used dirt, just like man. But instead he chose to open Adam's side and remove the rib. Adam was human. There was blood and sacrifice involved. Eve lived because Adam sacrificed his body. 
And when she was brought to Adam, the man verbally proclaimed her identity over her. His approval was not based on how well she performed her role. Because at that moment, she hadn't done anything. He approved of her because she was his. She was taken out of him, and the man celebrated his sacrifice. When Jesus came to earth, he left his acknowledged identity. He left his honor, his comforts, his dignity, and his preferences. Laying down his life was much more than the cross. And when his life culminated on Golgotha and he died on the cross, his side was pierced and outflowed both blood and water. His side was opened. There was blood and sacrifice involved. And the church lives because Jesus sacrificed his body. And Jesus verbally proclaims proclaims her identity. His approval is not based on how well she performs her role. We are approved of before we've done anything. He approves of us because we are his. We live because of him, and Jesus celebrates his sacrifice. You know, there is a reason for everything God says and does. If he is right now the Alpha and Omega, right now he is in the beginning, and right now he is in the end, that means he can move towards a goal of watching Jesus welcome his church in a perfect line. He can make all the pictures line up. Women were created to be a physical representation of the church. We are worth sacrifice, we are valuable, and we are vital. We desire to be loved, approved of, accepted, chosen, and seen as blameless in our husband's eyes, even in our unacceptable state, because that is how Jesus sees his church, and innately we desire what we were created to receive. And that is why men are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, Choosing her above his own reputation, comfort, conveniences, and preferences. And put that with a woman who gives back to him all the honor, respect, admiration that she can muster. And you have something unstoppable because you are feeding each other where you need it most. You see, you see what most men don't realize is when they truly forsake all others and cleave only to his wife, and lay down their lives, the honor and respect and submission they crave will be a spontaneous outflow of gratitude. Just like the church's worship, respect, love, praise, and celebration is a spontaneous outflow to Jesus for what he has done. Satan's goal isn't only to keep men isolated. He also is out to keep women from feeling loved because he knows that if he can keep us from feeling loved, we will have a hard time to truly honor. And there are many men who refuse to forsake all. Instead, they cling to their identities, reputations, and entitlements. And if Jesus had done that, there would be no church. 
I don't believe fulfilling our role depends on the other performance. We have no excuses, and we will get to that later on. But what we need to understand is grace. You need to love him with his imperfections as Jesus loves you. And in John 15:12 says, this is my commandment, to love each other in the same way I have loved you. In order to give this kind of grace, we have got to experience it ourselves. We cannot give what we do not have. We have got to understand that the grace God pours out on the church, and we have got to be able to see ourselves in God's eyes, and our identity has got to come from God and not our husband. As I was writing this, I was trying to think of a very unacceptable example. And the thing that came to my mind was if I was shopping at TJ Maxx and I found the coat of my dreams, like let's say it was red and puffy with the biggest fur hoods you ever did see, and it was garishly expensive. Let's say it was like $250. But Maybe it was the coat of my dreams, and maybe I could actually see myself walking down the street in that coat. And so I go ahead, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to buy it. I'm just going to go ahead and just do it. And so I buy it. I got the bag. I put it in the car. I go home, and I put it on, and Sam goes, that's so ugly. That is the ugliest thing. How much did you say it was? We think that right then we are forced into a certain action in order to be acceptable. Some, we feel like, oh, shoot, no. So I have to lay down my preferences and go return it. Because we feel somehow we have to do this, submit, and honor. Like, do it. But grace says, you can keep the coat and be acceptable. And I pray you hear my heart, because if my identity is wrapped up in God, the only thing that matters is what direction is my face facing. Because if your face is facing towards the Father, his face is also facing towards you. And he goes, I'm working on this. And he's speaking. And hopefully, as time goes on, he speaks and I receives, and he speaks and I receives, and I do, and just like the waves of the sea. It's when we turn our face away from the Father that we can no longer receive his grace. He, it's our choice. God doesn't send anyone to hell. We choose to turn away. And we say, no, I'm not, I don't want to listen to you anymore. You're going too deep. You're going to places that I'm uncomfortable with exploring. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And I believe that is what sinning against the Holy Spirit really means. 
it's repeatedly choosing to block out his his voice and refusing to listen. It's hardening your heart. God doesn't turn his face away. We are the ones that turn away. And so keeping that coat is actually a viable choice that I can make. Do I keep it or do I return it? What's more important to me? Who do I really, like, what, what is more important to me? I actually have a viable choice. I'm not forced into one direction in order to be acceptable. I'm accepted already even in my unacceptable space. It is trusting the identity that Jesus spoke over your life. And that never fluctuates by your performance. The approval of God on your life is not dependent on the approval of your husband. And when we can live in unshaken grace, we can extend unshaken grace. You cannot extend what you don't possess. Part five, living out ether. Every military establishes a strategy before the conflict. And our strategy is respect and honor. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. So be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. And I absolutely adore that verse. Because pretty much in the Christian life, that is what we are to do, to strategize for the kingdom of God. So let's back up and review. God believes in male and female equality. Galatians 3.28 says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God strategizes by establishing order and divvying out strengths and weaknesses. We are not to look at our roles as greater and lesser. An example of this is Jesus is under God, but we all know he isn't lesser. Women are a physical representation of the bride of Christ, and we relate to our husbands the same way as the church relates to Jesus. Every boy is born with a question, do, we, do I have what it takes? And we know that Satan wants to answer that question. His agenda is to prove to the man that he is insignificant and incapable as his deepest fear whispers it might, he might be. Respect isn't about, isn't something we do just because it's the right thing to do. Remember, God doesn't get bright ideas and just for the thing of it. He does everything with purpose. Showing respect is for a certain result. And it's to accomplish something. Have you ever asked the question, why should I honor, respect, and submit? And unlike many authorities, God is never, ever threatened by our question. Paul commends the Bereans for questioning and studying in Acts 17.11. His reasons, God's reasons, are big enough for any question you might ask. So Ephesians 5:22 to 33. Wives submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And to understand the meaning of a word, we need to back up and look at two things. The etymology, which is the original definition of the word, and the context. And so we're going to do that right here. The Greek word submit, hupotasame. The Greek word submit is a combination of a verb and a prefix. The verb tasso could be translated as set, arrange, and order. But what we miss right away in English is that this verb was a military term for arranging soldiers in ordered formation to confront an enemy. It was primarily military language for designating, commissioning, appointing, or deploying, or assign, appoint, and arrange. The ending of the word tells us we're in the passive middle voice. So literally, we could read the verse, deploy yourself under. Now, we could read the verb, as it appears in Ephesians 5.22, as place yourselves under your husband. And you might be technically correct. And then you might look, as past translators have, for something to be like subject to in order to render a a verse better in better and quicker English. But immediately, you lose the military context of hupotasami, which is about forming up for battle and about deploying or stationing yourself to support. And should we even be surprised? Because if God chose the military word, ezer, to define woman's role, doesn't it not make sense that he would choose another military term when assigning her the strategy? What we're talking about is not an ancient Greek word for abstract obedience, but a concrete metaphor of military support. Context of its use. This translated word, submit, deploy, is embedded within a passage that provides an extended military metaphor. Ephesians 1 begins with God's power and plan. Verse 3, beginning at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption of him to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to his will. They're giving us a picture of God's active work and his end goal. We celebrate And then it goes on to, we celebrate the fact that we are adopted in God's family. Later on, verse 9, God now, it says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ. Okay, this is his will, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is Bible truth, you guys. It's right there in verse 9, and it says, this is the plan. He's giving us the reason we're even fighting, the reason we're even strategizing with him. This is the plan, okay? This is his end goal, why he's doing any of this. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. And that is why he does the things he does. That's the whole reason why God makes 
his decisions. So working towards everything being brought together under the authority of Christ. Okay, think of this next part as his strategy, equipping us so we can help him accomplish this. This is going through Ephesians and, again, giving a basic uh, overview of the subjects, okay? Going on later in the chapter, we are reminded how we are made alive again. He's like, remember, encourage it. Guys, get the vision of some of this, of God encouraging his good soldiers. We talk about the importance of peace and unity of believers. Again, no army is secure unless there is unity and peace. The gifting, you know, explains then we are how we are the temple of God and then the giftings of each believer. And you guys, your giftings are to forward the kingdom of God, not to make yourself feel good about yourself. Living as children in light in a practical way is the next thing that Paul covers. And then living by the Spirit's power. He is literally giving you everything you need to succeed. And then chapter 5, it talks about spirit-guided relationships. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Do you know what it's like to be a beloved child? You're supposed to walk in that. He talks about how we should walk as children of light and then goes on to specific instructions to relationships. Wives, husbands, children, servants. And then at the end of it all, he goes into putting on the full armor of God. At the time, these letters were being written, and they challenged hierarchy, and they never supported it. Numerous times, Paul talked about how men and women are one body, fellow heirs, and husbands, and, com- and encourages husbands to love their wives as their own body. And honestly, I got a little bit, I got funny, because we all hear the jokes, like when a man has a flu, and he's like, oh, and a, and a woman gives birth to like ten babies and is washing it, you know. But men are supposed to love their wives as their own bodies. Like, that's a whole lot of love, you guys. First Corinthians 11 11 to 12, but among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. And although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from women, and everything comes from God. And I know that lots of women cringe a little bit when reading 1 Corinthians 11, but I'm pretty confident that in Paul's day, it was the men who were doing the cringing. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and I'm going to read this, and I want you to keep men in mind, your husband, your coworker, your boss, your brother. Okay. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as your shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Sometimes it takes a lot of faith to choose, no, I am a beloved child. I will walk as a beloved child. Because with faith, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance and making supplication for all the saints. That follows directly after the bit about submitting your husbands. There's a reason why, and there's an end goal that God had in mind. Okay, so I want to explore the meaning of the word head used in Ephesians. Because man, it says that man is the head of woman, just as God is the head of the church. And I want to say right now that I believe in God's order of authority. We see that we see that authority lived out in the Father God, Jesus Church. Seth, you can go ahead and put that on the, the screen. And I want you to take a moment and dwell on how that order lives out. God, Jesus, and church. And I know a lot of us have experienced negative church experiences or we haven't experienced the church living as a beloved bride. But just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean she's not beloved because the last chapter has already been written and she is already radiant there. And as we go into this, let's mirror the God, Jesus, church, order, and light it up with the God, three in one, man, woman, order. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The meaning of the word translated as head in that passage is a Greek word. And it has two meanings. It means head, and it means origin. 
a source like the head of a spring or a head of the water or a head of the river. Do you remember how the church came to be? And do you remember how a woman came to be? We don't respect and submit because man has better ideas. We don't respect and submit to him because he is always right. We don't respect or submit because it's wrong to disagree. And I want to revisit with you. Why does this church submit to Christ? Because if we need to submit like that, we need to understand how she does. It's not to gain approval. We're, we are already approved of because of what Jesus did. And it's not our own works. It comes from a genuine feeling of thankfulness that, spontane- that spontaneously outflows. We can't help it. We just, it's the least I can do. And that is how we should be submitting to our husbands. We respect him because we are accomplishing a goal. We are strategizing with God. We have a point to prove. We have a question to answer. We have a man to help. And we are given all the tools needed to accomplish that. And this leads into something else. This is why I do not believe in excuses. We aren't victims. Even if you find it impossible to submit with the same attitude that the church does, remember that God is using military language and war is never easy. 1 Peter 3, 1-22. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 said, says, Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Why? God did not intend these verses to be a three-point plan on how to have the least conflict in marriage. He actually is not afraid of conflict. He is not afraid of conflict. God actually values tension because wherever tension is is the opportunity for growth. If God was afraid of conflict, he would never push any buttons in your life and say, "Hey, I want to heal this." I want you to remember that you are strategizing with God. Remember, God is the one who created man, and he knows how to teach you the language of a man's heart. And it goes back to that question haunting your man's every day, do I have what it takes? To a man, respect, honor, and submission means I value you. You have got what it takes. Your mistakes do not change the way I perceive you, and you are more important to me than being right. It allows him to put his guard down, and he has nothing to prove anymore. It creates a safe 
space. It opens his ears so he will listen to you. It gives us a platform to speak into his life. And it is so much bigger than just doing what he says. Like everything else in the Christian life, it's your heart and what motivates you. And there are a lot of women going about the motions of respect and submission. They never dispute or challenge. They agree and comply. But all these motions are for just doing sake. The purpose is forgotten, and just like the church loses life when religion sets in, so honor loses its power when it's no longer done on purpose. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. The goal is not to do the right thing. We need to know what we are doing. We need to be aware and active. We women have the spirit of God inside of us. We host power in that spirit. And with the power invested in us, we can come against the devil's and all his agendas. There is devastating damage done when a church embraces religion. When the outward actions are put before the inward heart. When doing is more important than being. And remember, God created us to exemplify the church. Do you remember that ditch of deadly compliance? That passive control? Putting on a form of godliness for our own benefit? Do we submit so we can feel good about ourselves? Kind of a good wife. I'm doing everything I can. There are many women who submit just like that, that feel good about themselves. And it destroys their home, their husband, their children, and their own lives. Proverbs 31, 10 to 12 says, Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her, and she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. You know, we often think of finances when we talk about your husband trusting us. But can you prove to him that he can trust you with your, his failures? Or does he always have to prove to you that he was right? Can he trust you with the painful parts of his past? Or is he afraid that you will think less of him? Do you know right now what his present struggles are? Does he know you are co-laborers together? Or does he feel like he is slogging up a path by himself? We build trust and believe in him. We create safe spaces and we have patience. And isn't that the work of the church? We create safe spaces for people. She makes a place where people can come and get healed. And it takes time. We do not fight for a place. We prepare a place. Now, some people stop at honor and respect, but either isn't just about making a man feel like he is capable of going out to battle. 
it's about being willing to go out with him and fighting for him. Doing battle. 1 Corinthians 7.13 says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he is content to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And I know, most of us are married to really decent guys who love God and go to church. And as women, we desire the approval, the acceptance of our spouse more than anything. And what holds us back most from being easer is fear. Fear of rejection, fear of criticism, fear of conflict, fear of vulnerability. Exactly what Sapphira is afraid of. Do you remember what Peter said about Sarah? We are her daughters if we aren't afraid. If your actions are motivated by fear, they are absolutely the wrong actions. So what do we do? You first stop and renounce fear, and you refuse to participate with it. Fear will not only affect any decision that you make, but it will make your husband react as well. Because when a woman is afraid, it makes a man go on the defensive. He will feel like you don't trust him, and he will tend to want to control, or else he will give up and stop trying. And neither stance is a response needed for healing. When you allow yourself to see what's really going on, if all you can do is stand against fear, know that that in itself does a lot. There is power in recognizing a hurt area in your husband's life, seeing for what it for what it is, and standing against fear in your heart. Why? Because standing against fear takes the power of God. You engage the darkness with light. You are willing to accept the tension it brings. And what is the opposite of fear? It's faith. Faith knowing that God is there. It is not you and your words, and your suggestions. Standing there, allowing yourself to see what is going on, and standing silently in faith before the throne of God, your husband doesn't even have to know you are doing it. He's feeling your love and respect. He is aware of your honor. Your presence means safety and warmth. Prayer is warfare. 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And Luke 10.19 says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Matthew 18.18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, can be loose, will be, shall be loosed in heaven. We do not have authority over the man, but we definitely do have authority over the spirit world. Using our authority. First, we need to understand where it comes from. Because in Matthew 28:18, Jesus says, came and said to them, All authority is given in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. God himself is the power behind our authority. 
and we need to understand it belongs to us. The Bible says you are the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are the body. And his authority is perpetuated through the body. When Jesus rose from the dead, he transferred his authority on earth to his body, the church. And in God's mind, when Christ was raised, we were raised. Ephesians 2, 6 says, And God raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Both the head and the body are seated there next to God in the place of power and authority right now. You are seated there right now. At this very minute, you are seated there as a beloved child with all authority given to you. You are seated in a power position and you are his heir, Romans eight seventeen, And that means that everything that is his, including his authority, now belongs to you. How to use it. So you've got to understand your true position of power in order to use it. Because do you remember the verse that I read, having a form of godliness but denying the power? You've got to meditate on your position in Christ until you fully grasp the revelation that you are seated with him and you are the one he moves through. Then you can use your authority by speaking out what his word says in the name of Jesus. And think about that. When you use the name of Jesus, believing that you are seated with him at the right hand of God, you are backed by all the power of heaven, and every knee must bow to that name. Jesus made it very clear that his name is the key to all authority. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. You know, you could say that to the people around you. God is going to use you. You can say it over your kids. God is going to use you. I see him using you. God is going to use you mightily. God's Spirit is going to work through you. You are going to have a beautiful life, abundantly blessed in the Lord Jesus. Father God loves you. You know that? You can speak that. Because it says, if you ask anything in my name, Jesus, just proclaim truth out loud. If you don't do it, learn to do it. It only feels awkward in the beginning. How does this work out? Okay, so you know your husband's weaknesses as well as Satan does. You can identify the vulnerable areas and approach the areas Satan is destroying in your husband's life and come against them in Jesus' name. If it's a relationship with a child, you can come against that and pray over that area. Even while the encounter is going on, you can pray against Satan's agendas. You can bar him from entering the relationship. Right then and there. You can pray that Holy Spirit will enlighten your husband to the lies that he lies that he believes. And you can ask him to strategize with you by giving you thoughts, questions, and words you can speak into his life. All this can be, and I actually believe should be, done without your husband knowing it. All he is aware of is your honor 
your trust and your new confidence and the new confidence and strength, strength that radiates out of you. You are preparing a place. Remember, it's not your husband you're taking authority over. It's darkness. And the last part is speak. And for some of us, us, this is the hardest part of all because it feels super vulnerable to allow the spirit to flow out of us to our man. We have no problem talking about the day and lunch and what we'd like to do. But when it actually comes talking about praying or speaking words in the spirit, Sometimes we hesitate. When Holy Spirit speaks, the motivation is always love and empowerment. And if you are not motivated by love, it is not the Spirit of God. And the right words spoken in the wrong spirit are never right. Have you ever prayed out loud over your man? Have you put your hands on him and blessed him? Have you looked him in the face and told him, Holy Spirit is in you. I believe in you. I see Jesus in you. I really love the way you related to that child. I am thankful for you. May your spirit rule over your mind and your body. Thank you for all you do for us. Are you intimidated or afraid? these suggestions and if so I ask you why because it's worth exploring and I remind you that just like Sarah you should not allow fear into your life and if you are holding back it's pretty much 99.9% you're afraid I am not sure what or when he will tell you to speak into the life of the man in your life, or what words God will give you. But if you allow your heart to overflow in honor, if you stand against darkness, if you pray in the Spirit, I know that in the moment you need them, God will give you the, give you the words that he needs to hear. And so what would have happened if Sapphira would have been willing to be either? What if she would have made herself a safe place where Ananias could have voiced his insecurities? Showing honor, voicing appreciation, refusing to cower, refusing to bow to the spirit of fear, and yet asking nudging questions, little by little, to guide him into exploring the places in his heart that he's afraid to go. And once she was a safe place and Ananias opened up, sharing his insecurities, She held his heart and proved his trustworthiness. And what if instead of a lecture or silence, she spoke words of faith and love, all bathed in respect and honor, proving to him that he wasn't a lesser man in her eyes and proving to him that he isn't his worst fears. And yet when the time came, if he still decided to go ahead and pretend religious righteousness, she would have stood what is right and she wouldn't have lied to Peter she wouldn't have been afraid believe me you are up to this task God has equipped you with every skill needed to be easier 
He gave you an identity to represent in physical form the most treasured part of his life, his bride, his church. He has given he has given you the physical characteristics to see past the physical day-to-day into the reasons behind everything. He has given you the tools and strategy you need to reach your husband's heart and fight for him. And he gives you grace, seeing seeing you as accepted, even when you are unacceptable. And he has also given you all authority to resist darkness and fight against all those words and lies that Satan is using to try to answer that question. He has given you the strength to see it through because he promises that you can do all things through him. And I'm going to close with Matthew 16. It's pretty much my favorite. So the disciples and Jesus cross the sea. And then the disciples start worrying because they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus says, Do you not remember all the miracles I worked? Come on. Remember the loaves and the fishes? It's okay. And then right after that in verse 13, he asks a question. Who do those people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, oh, well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, Jeremiah, some of the prophets tossing around. And then he said, no. Say that I am. And Peter replied, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I believe that we can take that verse literally. Jesus will not only provide the daily bread, the daily grace, your daily faith. But he has given you the keys. Do you remember that we embody the church? And the church has all its has all the strength and more needed to come against gates and those gates have to fall in front of the church we embody that church you guys any lie stronghold or struggle the man in your life faces cannot withstand an ether do you understand why Satan tries so hard to make sure we don't understand what ether is 
the gates of hell cannot withstand us because we are equipped and fitted for this job. The gates of hell cannot withstand you. And you are equipped with every good thing. And this is done, and I'm turning it over to Lindsay. so much Kate for sharing and all your hard work in preparing. I know you put hours and hours of study in that. Can we just give her a hand for all her hard work? I feel like we heard so much tonight that we could um, have a springboard for maybe more discussions later, but it's, um, yeah, at maybe at another night or something because of time, but um, we as women have a high calling, and as I look out over the audience, I see different ones of us in different seasons and different roles or different times or seasons in our life, And but we all have a high calling, and one thing Kate said that really stood out to me was um, we have the same authority as men in Christ. Different roles, but same authority in Christ. And that's powerful. And as we find our identity in who we are in Christ, and that becomes a solid rock and a foundation. Um, And we experience healing for things in our past and, and maybe triggers that can trigger us. As we experience that, we create safe. Okay, let me back up. She made a comment about creating safe places. And I think we as women can all do that, no matter where we are in life. Um, We do not fight for that place, but we prepare a place. And I think it often starts in our hearts as we find healing from things in our past. We have then have an authority to speak out of that. So... um, yeah, I just enjoyed being here tonight, and thank you so much for sharing. Um, I think before I close with prayer, I think Kath has something she wants to share. Go ahead. wonderful opportunity to just show a little bit of love and support and care. Yeah. I have been tremendously blessed and moved as I we've been there a number of times now. The family has rallied around her and loved on her and just yeah, it's it's very um, touching to see how they're coming together as a family and God is moving in their lives. Okay, I think I'll just close with prayer, and uh, maybe we'll visit this some more another time. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you, God, that you're right, you're good, your word is solid, and you are faithful. 
and you have created us for a, um, a divine purpose. And I pray, God, for all these ladies, God, I pray that you would just pour out your anointing on each one of their lives and you would fill them with your spirit. And, God, that we would be uh, an influence in our lives to those around us, whether it's our husbands or our families or friends or church or church or whatever we, um, whoever we are around, God, I pray that we would be um, an influence of your love and your your um, your love and your forgiveness and your grace. And God, would you just use us? for your honor and your glory. Thank you so much for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.